The lessons of 2022 are the same as the lessons of 2018 and the lessons of 2016, which is that you can look at America as a country that has a kind of normal politics, or you can understand that at a national level in 2016, a growing fascist movement that began in reaction to Barack Obama's election has taken over the Republican Party, and that every election now is about whether or not we put in power that fascist movement, MAGA. And that's it. Oh, good. The Prince of Doom is here. It's not doom, because... Doom implies that we don't have a role to play in our future. And the point here is that we very much do. Just hours after polls closed on November 8th, 2022, it was clear conventional wisdom about U.S. politics had been turned on its head. The so-called red wave, the predicted midterm backlash against the sitting president's party, had seemingly crashed before reaching the shore. The red wave McCarthy and his colleagues predicted becoming more like a splash. Now you have to squint very hard to see any signs of a red wave. Republicans hope for a red wave are receding. Even as the midterm scoreboard got updated, news outlets and voters across the country started to pick up the story emerging from a historic midterm election. U.S. voters had defied precedent, pundits, and polling and turned out in order to confront Trumpism and protect their freedoms. There was also a deeper story at play. There absolutely were states where Republicans won, and sure enough, in those places, turnout among the Democratic base was anemic. And then there were the other states, where turnout defied the odds and Democrats triumphed. In this episode, we're going to break down how we made that latter phenomenon happen. We'll hear from one of my co-conspirators on a massive message testing, content creation, and dissemination effort across battleground states. We'll delve into a winning race with the governor of a pivotal battleground state who ran foregrounding freedom. And finally, we'll get a close-up look at strategy and numbers, what we knew going into the midterms, why the results baffled purveyors of conventional wisdom, and what this portends for our future. People say to me, you gotta be crazy. How can you sing in times like these? Don't you read the news? Don't you know the score? How can you sing? And so many others grieve By way of a reply I say a fool such as I Who sees his song as somewhere to begin I'm thrilled to welcome you to Season 3 of Words to Win By. I'm Anant Shinkar Osorio. I develop, test, and deploy political messaging to help candidates, organizers, and activists around the world win progressive victories. Today, we're talking about a campaign close to my heart, and blood, and sweat, and tears. 
the U.S. midterms. Politics comes with its own conventional wisdom. The patterns pundits and pollsters have identified across election cycles and the truisms campaign operatives claim are essential to win races. Ahead of the 2022 midterms, conventional wisdom said Democrats were set for a shellacking. And the best course for scraping by was to carefully calibrate to what the middle favors. To be clear, predicting a red wave made good sense. Historically, voters have treated midterms as referendums on incumbents. Out-party supporters are energized. Voters of the party in power tend to stay home. Plus, Democrats have a tendency for milk toast messaging, the appease-all, please-none approach, which usually all but guarantees lackluster turnout. Exhibit A, the long-standing fear of campaigning on abortion. For decades, Democratic strategists warn candidates to avoid the A-word and stick to issues that aren't polarizing. On top of this, MAGA Republicans had learned a clear lesson from 2020. They couldn't count on voters picking them, and so they had to pick their voters. They recruited supporters who showed up en masse to harass voters. They tried to block vote counting in several swing states and passed anti-voter restrictions in states covering over 55 million eligible voters. But two very important events gave us the chance to upend the normal physics of midterms. On January 6th, 2021, thousands of rioters, many coming from the Save America rally, stormed the U.S. Capitol as Congress meant to certify the 2020 presidential election results. The Supreme Court has just issued, and this is the decision many were waiting for, a ruling in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. This, the major case regarding abortion rights. The Supreme Court upended nearly 50 years of precedent and eliminated the federal constitutional right to abortion. But in order for those events to actually impact the election, we had to ensure voters heard about them continuously and that these events hung like a lead balloon, sinking the fortunes of MAGA Republicans running for office. Enter an intrepid band of true believers determined to defy the grim democratic prospects through research and messaging, ad-making and organizing, strategy and agenda-setting, turnout and persuasion. Among them, myself and my longtime colleague and friend, Jennifer Fernandez Ancona. We had taken one trip to D.C. that I remember really clearly where every single room we were in was just so depressing. People just were giving up, essentially. We got to forget 2022. We just got to look ahead to 2024. And I and others, a few others were part of this group of being like, you guys, come on, buck up. Yeah. One of my favorite Democratic go-tos is we're the losing team. We lose a lot. We lost recently, so let's not even try. It's really, it's a great look. It's definitely a winning approach. <laughs> Jennifer is the co-founder and chief strategy officer at Way to Win, a national hub of donors, strategists, and grassroots leaders. She and I helped develop a multi-state midterm campaign carried out by tenacious organizing groups which we named Protect Our Freedoms. Alongside dozens of colleagues, we helped create hundreds of ads over the summer of 2022 to understand not just which particular pieces worked best, but also to glean patterns across them. 
we gave our approach its own special name. Do you know what that special name I'm referring to is? Is it Mobisuasion? It is Mobisuasion. What does Mobisuasion mean? So Mobisuasion is just a cap a catch-all in my mind for the fact that there's all different kinds of persuasion that is needed to ultimately mobilize and persuade people to come together and to vote the right way. The way that I usually define it, although I agree with yours, is that mobilization is persuasion. Mm-hmm. So if you have a message that the base isn't willing to repeat, if you have a concept that they won't latch on to, then by definition, it couldn't be persuasive to the middle because the middle's not going to hear it. They're going to be drowning in a sea of endless MAGA hats and MAGA slogans. And so this idea that somehow we're making an either or choice, either we're going to mobilize the progressive base, try to get them up off the couch and into the voting booth, or we're going to woo these all important white swing voters who apparently never leave Midwestern diners. I think they're required by law to spend a certain number of hours within them. (laughs) And that, you know, you're going to do one or the other. That is just that defies the laws of repetition and just how you break a message through. I'll say the other way I think about it is like having a message frame or an idea that is both at the same time mobilizing to the base and persuasive to the middle. It's important because of how political funding has historically happened, where certain audiences get carved out into mobilization audiences and certain audiences get carved into a persuasion audience. And the mobilization audience typically would get nonpartisan dollars, basically just telling people where and when to vote, but not why. And then all the money that would go into persuasion would be more for white swing voters that you mentioned in the diners, where it's like a lot of effort, you know, and it's partisan dollars and it's like really clear about why they should vote. So that's why I think our idea is so important, because it, it actually tries to shift a whole way that political campaigns have thought about messaging an audience. This dedication to Moby Suasion led us to the core of our campaign the five principles we derive from looking at what worked across everything we tested. Recalling these principles now was a walk down memory lane. The first one was how important it was to make this election a contrast between the MAGA or Trump Republicans who would take us backward and the voters who could come together and reject that and and take us forward into the future. The second one was it's really effective to use abortion as one of the most salient examples of how the MAGA Republicans were trying to take us backward and tying it to other things. And then the third was our favorite, freedom. And it was most powerful to say it's our freedoms that are on the ballot from our freedom to decide whether when we want to have kids to our freedom to vote and have the will of the people decide. It really was the most powerful frame that we found. So the fourth one was knowing that the right-wing playbook is so often to use race and gender and class-based attacks that an effective way to counter that is to call it out, to actually name how the right is scapegoating these different groups for their own particular gain and really kind of calling out their true motivations and and naming, um, naming those attacks, not just ignoring them or letting them slide by. And then the fifth was around how to combat cynicism. One of the most important things that we can do in our messaging is make the voters the hero of the story, remind them that literally they have come 
together and they have done this before. And so therefore they can do it again. So really tapping into that power of collective action. Holy shit, Jen, did you review the whole deck before this interview or do you just really remember it that well? (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of wild, but I just really remember it. I think some of the most striking focus group comments that I can recall, and I am a person who has been part of doing two to four focus groups a week, every single week for the last three and a half years. And seeing, for example, Burley White Guy in Wisconsin after shit-talking Dems for his requisite 30 minutes at the top because it's swing voter focus group, saying, at the end of the day, I can learn to live within a budget, but what I cannot do is learn to live without my freedoms. And similarly, white lady in Texas said something like, prices go up and prices go down, but if they take our freedoms, it's forever. And just both how important freedom was to these people, but also just how much Dobbs and abortion was like, no thank you. And under Jennifer's direction, with the brilliant artistry of Wind Company, in collaboration with Dan Ancona, we wrote and created a tentpole ad to encompass all of the principles we had uncovered. America was founded on a dream of freedom. One that is yet to come true. It was freedom for some. Freedom for the few. Until we, the people, rose up and came together. From the Underground Railroad to Standing Rock. From Stonewall to Selma. We've pushed America towards that dream of freedom again and again and again. But there have always been those who use fear and division to cling to power. Now, once again, they are threatening to take away our freedoms, to control our own bodies, to vote and have the will of the people prevail, to love who we love. Progress often seems impossible. The truth is, we decide what's possible. You decide what's possible. We can build a country where all of us are free to thrive, place where equality, justice, and liberty are real. And someday, when the next generation asks what we did in this moment to protect our freedoms, we'll be able to say everything we could. What this ad does is walk us through the struggles for freedom in America's history culminating in hundreds of everyday Americans placing ropes around a fallen Statue of Liberty to restore her upright. And what it conveys is the truth that America has always been an argument, an argument between people who want to make real the promise of liberty and justice for all, no exceptions, and people who are determined to have these inalienable rights apply only to the wealthy white few. The ad anchors to the critical value of freedom. As Jennifer mentioned, freedom, and specifically the plural freedoms, which we found activated more progressive associations among focus group respondents, was core to our campaign. When Americans are asked what value most closely represents the country to them, across generations, races, ideologies, and zip codes, the value they most often pick is freedom. As such, we simply cannot afford to let the right claim it as their own. 
Indeed, while progressives are often skittish about using freedom in our rhetoric, this concept has proven pivotal to our victories. From FDR's Four Freedoms speech during the New Deal, This nation has placed its destiny in the hands and heads and hearts of its millions of free men and women, and its faith in freedom under the guidance of God. To the civil rights movement, Freedom Rides and Freedom Summer. And when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. To the more recent Freedom to Marry. One person who absolutely got freedom and used it to stunning advantage? Let me tell you something. It's not freedom to tell women what they're allowed to do with their bodies. That's not freedom. It's not freedom to tell our children what books they're allowed to read. It's not freedom when he gets to decide who you're allowed to marry. I say love is love. That's Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro speaking at a rally in Philadelphia while on the campaign trail. I spoke to Governor Shapiro about his campaign. Really, the the impetus for me speaking so openly about freedom and regularly about it and making it a central focus of my campaign um, occurred after having breakfast one morning with my wife. Lori had just read an article about a national Republican who kept talking about freedom, but was also trying to restrict uh, a woman's right to choose. And she's like, this is ridiculous. Like, they all talk about freedom, and yet what they're for is the opposite of freedom. And she just really, like, crystallized what had been banging around in in my brain. I took to the stage in Erie at a big event um, and decided that rather than sort of delivering um, my typical, you know, remarks, I would actually get up and talk about freedom and how not only was the other side talking a good game about freedom, but limiting it, that we are the party of freedom and that this campaign is what was going to protect our freedom, the right to choose, the union way of life, um, the right to vote, our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. And and in, in addition to that, your right to live in a safe community, get a quality education and breathe clean air and drink, you know, pure water. And that is really the first time where I put it all together and spoke about it. And then that became a real rallying cry for our campaign and a focal point of every speech I gave. As you just heard, one of Governor Shapiro's go-to topics was abortion. What conventional wisdom deemed off-limits, or at least to be touched only when strictly necessary, for a battleground state candidate. From day one, which was long before Dobbs, we made clear that I'd be a governor that defended a woman's right to choose. And I never wavered from that. Ultimately. I ended up running against an extremist who not only wanted to do away with any exceptions whatsoever, not for the life of the woman, the health of the woman, 
Speaking of that extremist, (laughs) you obviously did a lot of work to make clear the difference between you and him. And you said at one point, if you don't, quote, think, look, worship, vote, or marry like Mastriano, you don't count in his Pennsylvania. And then you went on to say, no matter what someone looks like, where they come from, who they love, or who they pray to, what are you telling audiences when you kind of kick off by making clear that everyone means everyone, no exceptions? That you matter. We've got to make sure that people feel like they count here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, that they are respected here, and that their freedoms and their interests are going to be looked after. And the way you do that is by making sure that you are including everyone in your efforts to make progress. My opponent had the exact opposite approach. I don't want to relitigate the election, but at every step of the way, he kept trying to limit the groups that mattered. He would attack people because of their faith. He would attack them because of what they looked like. He would attack them because of who they loved. He tried to control their bodies and the books they can read and the medicines that they could take. That's really the opposite of freedom and inclusivity. I felt that this campaign, mine for governor in 2022, and also others around the nation, was a pivotal moment in our American story where individuals needed to rise up and demand more and seek that change. And actually, the story in America has been people exercising their rights within the framework of our democracy to perfect our union and strengthen our democracy. In a state Biden barely won in 2020, Governor Shapiro won his race by double digits, beating MAGA Republican Doug Mastriano by nearly 15 points. And he did so, messaging from a place of inclusivity, running his campaign with abortion at the forefront, and promising to protect our freedoms. Governor Shapiro is a stellar example of understanding. If you want to win the debate, you must set the terms. To help others do the same, those of us working on the Protect Our Freedoms campaign created a social media toolkit to make it easy for folks to access, learn from, and put out effective content using our messaging framework. We did briefings, so many briefings, with everyone from elected officials to organizers to TikTok legends to convey the effective messaging principles. Our partners at Gutsy Media customized over 200 ads so local groups could put their brands on them and spread the campaign out to their audiences. And then it was time for the election. We know how that turned out, but Jennifer set out to understand why it turned out the way it did. We also did some polling after the election in battleground states to unpack a little bit more what happened What we saw was really the power of the two issues taken together, democracy and abortion. What we saw was independents overwhelmingly voting and choosing Democrats, Gen Z and young people overwhelmingly choosing Democrats. We just saw the coalition reassemble and come together in the same way that we saw in 2020 rejecting Trump. And in some ways, even more so, we were able to actually grow that coalition in many places. In the states where... Democrats really embrace this freedoms narrative, both like literally that wording or protect our freedoms even more. We won. 
And, you know, then we have states where I would argue Democrats fought on much more traditional lines and turnout was very much down, as everyone predicted it would be. They set themselves backwards um, and very much are the reason that we lost the House. So there were there were some some dark spots. It's true. It's true because we could have won the House if everybody would have actually taken taken this message advice that we were giving. So there you go. Learned. (laughs) At the end of the night, Democrats flipped four state legislatures, seizing control of key 2024 swing states, staved off massive losses in the House, and maintained control of the Senate. Those results and the approach required to achieve them left many purveyors of political analysis flat-footed. Fortunately, some people understood not just what happened, but the dynamics behind it. People like the guy I unfairly labeled Prince of Doom at the top of the episode, Michael Pothorser. Tell us who you are and what you do. Um, seriously? I mean, usually the other person does that. Okay, fine, Mike. I'll introduce you. This is Michael Pothorser dubbed the godfather of progressive data by New York Times columnist Ezra Klein, Mike has been a force in politics for almost 50 years now. He's the former political director of the AFL-CIO, founder of the Analyst Institute, Catalyst, the Research Collaborative, and the Defend Democracy Project. He's also, as you may have realized from our banter at the top, my favorite sparring partner, close collaborator, and phenomenal friend. Mike is also a frequent challenger of conventional wisdom. The basic model that the conventional wisdom has is that essentially there's a jury of voters, the same people vote all the time, and they're making a different decision because of buyer's remorse after they voted in the presidential election. But once you look at the voter file and look at the actual records of who shows up, what you see is that there's one big group of voters who do vote every election. And what it turns out in this period is that very few of those people had changed their mind in the midterms. What does happen in the midterms is there's another group that is almost as large that sometimes votes in uh, even-yeared elections. But whether or not they vote or not depends more than anything else, is whether they think they have something to lose in that election. And the key insight to think about 2022 was that this explosion of people who started voting after Trump would vote again if they felt that there was a similar risk of MAGA or Trump coming back. And that was something the conventional wisdom just sort of went, la, 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 la. One of the things that happened after Trump won in 2016 and 2018 in the midterms is that turnout turnout rate went up by 14 points. In the entire history of keeping track of this stuff since the Civil War, The highest it had ever gone up before that was half that. But now it's all different because you go from 80 million people voting in 2014, the last midterm, to 120 million people voting in 2018. But all the conventional wisdom didn't ask itself, 
Um, how anti-MAGA were those extra 40 million people? And would they come out again in this midterm? And as you know, our analysis was that the reason all of those people came out to vote against Republicans in 2018 was a fear of what Republicans were doing. A uh, sense that they didn't want to lose their freedoms as they'd experienced under Trump. The real key, the real story of midterms was going to be were those voters going to be reactivated? And then two major events happened that changed the calculus of the election. Whether they changed them more broadly, we'll get into a second. By those two events, in case it's not obvious, I mean the January 6th hearings and the Dobbs decision. Tell us a little bit about how those two events altered conventional thinking, if at all. Well, the I don't think that they altered conve- conventional thinking is really stubborn in its commitment to its self-interest and stupidity. The <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, how else would it continue to grow and flourish? Exactly. It really took getting hit over the head with a two-by-four before something like a shift in conventional wisdom began to happen. The sort of polling industrial complex really wants, like, insists that voters explain themselves by picking one of a set of issues that they offer them, Right. And so, but with respect to MAGA and Trump, people are not thinking, well, it's really abortion that is why I don't want them, but I'm okay with everything else or something like that, right? It's the constellation of things. But there's no option in the survey to say, I really don't want them, right? And I called them sort of the hell no voters. Generally speaking, lots of political data gathering involves asking people to register their preferences and rank their priorities among a set of policy issues. But while these hell-no voters may claim they prioritize some policy, in reality, what gets them to tune into politics and to make it out to the polls is feeling like something is really at stake for them in an election. You've published analysis of what happened that you titled Red Wave, Blue Undertow. What does that mean? There was one election going on in competitive states with top-of-the-ticket MAGA candidates, and there was another election going on everywhere else. And in the everywhere else part of the country, Democrats lost by precisely what they should have based on history by about six points. In the other states, the governors of Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin won by more in this what should have been a red wave year than they did in that blue wave that everyone understands was a big thing for Democrats, right? Because there are these two elections going on at the same time. It's that where hell no voters understood they had to show up, they showed up. And in those states that were part of the blue undertow, turnout was actually exactly as high as it had been in 2018. In the other states, turnout dropped by five points. In in your quest to 
use as many analogies as possible. (laughs) Which seems to be a contest you're in with me. I would say you're winning. You have used the term Procrustean myths to catalog a lot of what these kinds of standard explanations are. What does that mean? And can you give us an example of some of those myths? Sure. So um, for those who like skip Greek mythology. Which is no one. Everyone's like super up <laughs> on it. Um, so Procrustes was an innkeeper who advertised that that those who stayed at his inn could be assured of a bed that fit them perfectly. And when folks showed up, the way he made good on that was by cutting their limbs off if they were too tall or stretching them if they were too small. Um, But the bed was always the same. And so I use that as a way of sort of talking about the post-election analysis by all these people who got it wrong, which is that like elections still have to work the way they thought they should work. They still have to conform to the stories that they've been telling people about how elections work, even though it means cutting off limbs, which are facts that completely contradict their story. One of the most important assumptions that underlies Procrustean punditry is that everyone in America is kind of the same. And I think to sort of illustrate what I'm talking about, if I say white non-college voter, it is almost impossible for people listening to this not to immediately see a burly guy in a northern Midwestern diner. And so when we start worrying about how are we going to win like in Wisconsin, say we're that God, burly guys in the diner, and like, oh my God, what are we going to say? And try to convince them not to vote for Trump. What we're not seeing, but we could easily see if we just pull the camera back a bit, is Charlene leaning over the counter and pouring coffee, right? Who is really freaked out about losing access to abortion and the misogyny that she sees rampant. And if you pull back a little bit further, You don't see the three kids in a booth by the window who are also non-college, and they are not really following politics. But when it comes around election time and they hear about all this stuff, they become hell-no voters. And the problem with the, the conventional wisdom punditry is they insist you only think about the burly guy. Since Trump won, there have been 27 elections for governor, senator, and president, statewide elections in those states. MAGA and Republicans have lost 23. It's a record of almost perfect defeat. And that is completely inconsistent with the story that unless Democrats cater to Bob, the burly guy in the Wisconsin diner, they can't win in those states. I'm from Wisconsin. I think that guy's name is Chuck, or it's Jan, Jan Janssen. <laughs> It's up to us to buck conventional wisdom and make voters recognize that they are the agents of their own future, or at the very least, the only bulwark against MAGA Republicans' absolutely transparent plans to rule over, not represent us. 
The 2022 midterms were astounding, but this didn't happen by chance. It happened because, despite seeing issue polling at the outset of 2022 that said voters didn't care about January 6, we decided that was a problem to be solved, not a data point to be accepted. So rather than sweep it aside and speak only of economic issues, congressional Democrats made the January 6th hearings prime time viewing. It happened because, as reproductive rights, health, and justice advocates have said for generations, bringing abortion to the fore made it absolutely clear what is at stake. It happened because we recognized that there is no such thing as a fixed median voter with static preferences. The composition of the electorate doesn't just change in every election. It is the job of political campaigns to change it. And the set of issues that matters most to people depends on what issues we make most salient. I want to leave us on a note from Mike, who, despite my chiding, offers us a way to light up and move out of the darkness. I think one thing that sort of the conventional wisdom does that is really problematic but easy to succumb to is this constant drumbeat of polls and stories about who's going to win the election. And you should really just never pay attention to that, right? Because implicit in it is the idea that what you do really doesn't matter, right? That there is some statistical model that like, is going to tell you who's going to win, right? And it's just not true because it is sort of up to us to make it happen. But I think it's really important for listeners to understand how what Anat brings to messaging is so essential because we have an entire polling industry that is built on finding a illusory right thing to say rather than thinking strategically about what needs to be said in order for us and our families and future generations to have the world we want to live in. And when you begin the thinking about messaging from a fixed point where you're trying to find out what people already believe and how to ingratiate yourself with them, rather than thinking about how you can lead people to realizing our shared values that take us to the world we want, you're always ratcheting our standard of living and our freedoms backwards. Or, as I like to say, it's not the job of a good message to say what is popular. It is the job of a good message to make popular what we need said. Words to Win By is a Wonder Media Network production. The show is produced by Carmen Borca Carrillo, Brittany Martinez, and Edie Allard. Our editor is Grace Lynch. 
with editorial support from Liz Brown and Lucy Jones. Huge thanks to Jay Marcellus, Anthony Torres, Way to Win, Lale Ispahani, Michaela Fernandez, Tom Perriello, Liz Jaff, Dan Ancona, Tara Buss, Mackenzie Young, Aaron Strauss, Chauncey McLean, Ishani Parikh, John Fromowitz, Julie Ermelin, Gutsy Media, Anika Fascia, Tinslin Sims, Grecia Lima, Rana Epting, Maurice Mitchell, Leah Greenberg, and Shauna Thomas. And thanks as well to Carla Jurvetson and Cooper Tebow. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and me, Anat Shinker Osorio. Our theme music was written by T.R. Ritchie, produced and arranged by Dan Leone. To stay on top of Mike's political analysis, subscribe to his Substack at weekendreading.net. To find out more about this and any of our episodes, go to wordstowinby-pod.com. If your words don't spread, they don't work. So please let others know and rate and review the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. A song is somewhere to begin To search for something worth believing in If changes are to come There are things that must be done And a song is somewhere to begin